I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Climate change, it's real and it's human made. Well, look, you know, to be fair, we're not totally sure of that because scientists only put the probability at 95% or greater that man is responsible. But ice cores are melting, sea temperatures are rising, extreme storms are becoming more regular. Sounds real, doesn't it? Unless, of course, you're the President of the United States. So can the planet be saved by central banks? Can the arbiters of monetary control also be the ones who ultimately control the climate? Sounds like a pretty big call, doesn't it? But we'll give it some consideration today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. And I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, the idea for uh, today's discussion comes, well, it's thanks to Alexander Leopold, who's a Steve Keane supporter on Patreon, who wrote to us about a speech from a member of the ECB, the European Central Bank. Uh, It was a speech on monetary policy and climate change. It was actually for a conference a few weeks ago, which was called Scaling Up Green Finance, the Role of Central Banks. And I guess before we look at what's said. Let's look at, uh, you know, whether central banks are really the culprits here because they have ignored climate change so far. Their focus obviously has been on sustainable growth and uh, and, and ensuring that, uh, you know, there's no huge fluctuations in prices. It, with, with that sort of focus, uh, obviously, they will have helped contribute to climate change. Yeah, I mean, they've been um, the, their whole objective has been to achieve a, a rate of real economic growth for, for the uh, advanced OECD nations of three percent per annum, and their target uh, when you're looking in developing economies has been of the order of five percent per annum. Yeah, and they've done that with without any regard to what that might mean in terms of the sustainability in the genuine sense of the economy, uh, given the impact that puts on the climate. Well, maybe now is about the time that they start doing that, although I wonder whether their thinking is in the along the right lines. So Benoit Kure uh, is the guy from the ECB. He says, central banks and policymakers deal with two categories of shocks. The first is demand driven. If things slow down, then obviously inflation goes down, growth slumps, unemployment goes up. So they lower interest rates. So people have more money, people, companies can invest more, and it's all magically fixed, so long as we ignore the fact that, you know, if they pushed uh, interest rates lower than asset prices go up. Uh, the second category is, he says, supply side shocks where inflation can go down, but uh, can go up, I should say, but output goes down. And he's saying climate change can fit into this category as a climate, a supply side shock, except, of course, climate change isn't a shock. It's here to stay, isn't it? This is the thing. I mean, when I, when I saw that, the, the Alexander sent it through to us, and I, I just said, oh, my God, I can see exactly where this is coming from. And this, the whole idea that you can resolve uh, the problems in, in any system to, into shocks to technology and shocks to demand uh, is the thinking that they have in their models of the economy they call dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, yeah. where the only two things that can cause changes in the, in the in, both in the short and the long run, for this case, and some of the more extreme versions, the only thing that can cause things to be disturbed from the path of equilibrium they presume the economy is on is some unexpected change to people's tastes, which is where they talk about the, the uh, uh, demand shocks, 
but the other side is unexpected changes to technology, where they talk about things like they try to bring that in terms of climate change. And otherwise, the system sails on uh, in perfect equilibrium through time, and that is their vision of the economy. And heaven, holy mother of God, if they're going to apply that to the climate, to, to the climate itself, it's worse than useless. We're doomed. Yeah, well, I, are they... I mean, it's not really... Sa- if, if it sailed on in equilibrium, obviously we wouldn't need central banks to handhold us and try and correct all of these uh, the, these fluctuations. But is it on the supply side... Uh, sorry, on the demand side, and I guess it, we really should be focusing more on the supply side if, if, if that's what they're calling climate change. But on the, on the demand side, it's not just change in taste, is it? Because, I mean, we can have demand fall because, for example, we're holding too much debt, so we decide we're going to spend less and so that has that, oh, that seems a shock you're in the, the wrong universe i'm sorry that doesn't apply in our universe in, 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 in their universe, universe in our universe or their universe of course yeah i'm speaking on their behalf at the moment i'm sure they'd enjoy that uh in in their universe uh credit plays no role there so therefore there can't be a credit shock right so if we, there was so, so demand will always hold up. We're, ne- we're never going to stop buying stuff uh, yeah. un- unless we're mad. That's basically their angle. Well, their, their angle is that you can resolve the world into, into two halves. Uh, I think I just saw a wonderful, uh, one, wonderful send-up of, um, uh, of the state of modern macroeconomics in a tweet yesterday, and it really it did summarise the state of economics in less than, less than 280 characters. <laughs> and that was a said, microeconomics is the study of, 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 more than, of, two, of two people interacting, meaning uh, consumers and producers. Macroeconomics is the study of one person interacting. Huh? What the hell does he mean by that? When you look at the models, they model the economy as if there is a single household. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to jump at me on this one. This is where they start from: a single household consisting of a worker capitalist who owns the firm in which he or she. Or let's say it works because we're talking androgyny here. Uh, owns owns the uh, factory in which it works and makes a trade-off uh, between leisure and income based on the wage that it offers itself from this factory. And on we go. And it is a fantasy world that I don't think, I think Ptolemy, uh, if, if, if you show the old astronomer Ptolemy, he'd say, you're joking, it can't be that stupid a system. Uh, this is somebody who invented a, a model where the Earth's the centre of the universe and everything revolves in perfect circles around it. At least Ptolemy's stuff was halfway halfway realistic compared to what economists have these days. So they literally imagine you can model the entire economy. They start from a single so-called representative agent. The representative agent owning the factory, 100% ownership of the firm, which operates, by the way, in perfect competition, which is good fun since you've got a monopoly operating in perfect competition, but let's not go there, Melda. Um, and then the and making a decision to supply or leisure or, or labour. And, of course, uh, getting again the profits and the wages go back to the same household. So there's no income distribution issues to worry about. There's no class struggle because you are the entire social class. Right. Absolutely ludicrous bunkum. Well, you have the competition because the person you're talking about is bipolar, so he's competing against himself. His inner thoughts. He's, That's possibly he's, true. He's, I haven't he, thought of that. Possibly. But he Maybe destroys himself, though. He doesn't get the equilibrium as a result of all that. But look, let's well, get no, back. Yeah, multi-person personality in equilibrium. That's feasible. Yeah. <laughs> but Sorry, it is all about the earth. I mean, that is the one thing. And Benoit Curé said in his speech in climate change, uh, droughts and heat. The, so this is where he's talking about the supply side shocks. Droughts and heat waves often lead to shortfalls, putting upward pressure on food prices. Now, Alexander Leopold, our our listener, said what he failed to mention, of course, was that uh, what boosted crop prices in 2007 to 2008 and again in 2010 to 12 was extensive speculation 
on crops and other commodities. It was not caused by all the divine forces he blames as being responsible. And according to the DSGE equilibrium theory that you were talking about, uh, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. I mean, but that is the point, isn't it? This whole idea that, you know, if you've got low interest rates, that causes speculation uh, with a limited commodity like housing or land or crops or any natural resources. We can borrow money on the cheap, so we speculate on something which has a, a, an upper limit to the supply, and that is part of the problem. Absolutely, and that's the real world, and this is where we, you know, we, we have got a, we, we all know, by the way, I absolutely loved your tweet this morning about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, I want to repeat what you wrote. I mean, that's it's perfect, because this is about climate change as well. Oh, uh, well, I've got to find it. So Donald Trump, let me see if I can find it on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, so Donald Trump uh, wrote, uh, and the man is mad, isn't he? I mean, we, we were giving him the benefit of the doubt for a while. But he said, brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records. Whatever in, in capitals. In, in capitals, capitals, all records. Whatever happened to global warming? Uh, so I just replied, this is your best right yet. Who writes your material? He or she is hilarious. Uh, but does the president know about this spoof account? And of course, it's not a spoof account. This is Donald Trump writing in his own. One. I mean, there is there is a spoof account, which one of my good friends, Louis-Philippe Franchon, mistakenly believed was the real the real deal a couple of weeks ago. And I had to point out to him, mate, you are Canadian. You do understand satire, don't you? This was a satire account. But you're right. that You can't send up somebody who writes stuff like that. No. So look, so we so the, let's get back to the issue again. This just this whole thing about the fact that so is is that the main problem that with with the economy, and what's the role of central banks in all no, of this? It's if it, absolutely it, irrelevant to the real economy. It is totally totally distracting us from what's actually happening in the real economy. To even think that you can describe it in terms of an equilibrium system subject to exogenous shock. Yeah, this is. This is the, the, the travesty of this, uh, is that we are now approaching a complete systemic breakdown in the, in, in the climate. And, that, and there's some, I've given up trying to be reasonable about this. That is what we face. Right. And the whole idea that you can treat this as a disturbance from equilibrium, because when you talk about shocks, and this is the thing which, which they're not considering, a shock for like a drought uh, has to have a balancing shock on the other side of a flood. In other words, what you've got is a distribution of rainfall, and you model, the way they model shocks is, a, is a, a random process where there's some mean and some standard deviation to it. And so in the case of the weather, if they actually did try to incorporate the climate in their models and doing it the way this, and pardon me, mate, he's, he's obviously a highly intelligent person, but he's been trained to be an intellectual moron. Uh, the guy who came out with that comment from the ECB. The way he would actually incorporate that in the model would be to bring in another Gaussian variable, a you know, variable normally distributed with a mean and standard deviation and so on, uh, of the level of, of, of temperature or another one of the level of, of, of rainfall. Now, to say there's a shock mm. uh, and it's normally distributed, then when there's drought, there'll be flood. When there's hot, there'll be cold. But, the, uh, but he's looking at financial shocks, isn't he? So he's not looking at those because you can't call it a, a shock on, on temperatures because as, you, as you're saying, it, it, it's uh, just continually it's trend. moving, it's it's trending trend. upwards. Absolutely. But if, we look at, but if we look yeah. at oil, for example, in the last month, it's gone from $60 a barrel up to $85 a barrel. Now it's back down where it started from. So that's, a, that's a, in, in, you know, an economist would call that a shock or, or a trader would call that a shock that's possible that's a feasible but, but, but yeah but this what we're talking about with climate change and and the question is how do you think about climate change what mental processes do you bring to bear to decide what you should do about climate change and what we've had with central banks is first of all for decades ignoring the issue because their whole objective has been to achieve a, a rate of real economic growth in the west of the three about three percent per annum in real terms and in the in the uh the developing economies about between about five percent. Those have been their targets. 
that in, in the case of a 3% rate of growth, that means you're doubling every 25 years, roughly. Yeah. Uh, the, your, 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 your energy, and, and because, as we know, for anybody who actually understands something about how things are produced, energy plays an essential role, you are therefore effectively doubling your demands for energy. The, the best you might be doing is increasing them by, say, 30%, given some efficiencies you might get in, in further energy consumption. But that has been targeting indefinitely a doubling of our, let's say, let's say a doubling of our energy needs every 40 years. Now, the whole problem with climate change is the load we're putting on the planet by doing precisely that. So the only so, thing our central bank can do then is to stop that happening, which is to, is to, yeah. which is to stop growth, which, is, which obviously is the whole premise for what central banks are there to try and uh, encourage so it's a what, the, what, the, what they'd need to be doing is thinking about it in a fundamentally different way they're completely intellectually unprepared for the very issue and that's obvious in that speech of talking about climate change as if it's an exogenous shock well, um, and of course the winner of climate change is is the finance sector because it's pushing everyone's insurance premiums up so uh, unless things become so catastrophic the insurance companies start to collapse but then of course we know when that happens we'll see tighter regulation to stop that happening which is going to push premiums higher it's like a, it's a sticking plaster not tackling the issue but in in the short term at least the finance sector is winning in this game in the short term, they are, and, and they're also a major reason to why we don't have the capability to, to do what we need to do about climate change because many, many intelligent people, that are classic rocket scientists, have now, rather than producing rockets or producing other technology you might actually be able to use when it comes to finally addressing the damage we're doing to the, to the ecosphere, uh, they're, they're, they're developing exotic uh, derivatives as well, instead in the finance sector. Hmm. So we've lost the skill base to the finance sector as well as them being the winners out of the short-term volatility. But if, if central banks are doing their job properly and they're looking, because at, at some point this is going to have a, I mean, it already is, but it, but the economic impact of climate change is going to grow as time goes on. So if central banks are all about uh, ensuring continued growth, surely their forecasts will be showing that. If they were basing their forecasts on climate change, if they're looking at the variables that we, that we see contributing to climate change and looking at uh, what the cost of that is going to be in the long term, um, then you know it's going to cost us more to support the catastrophic events that are going to be a a result of climate change. Um, then they change their models a bit, wouldn't they? No, they have to throw their models out. This is the problem. That's why I was so erected so violently to the whole idea that you can talk about climate assets and dodge in a shock. Hmm. Um, they simply don't have the intellectual capability with those models to consider the feedbacks that exist between the real world and the and the and the, um, and the financial and economic system. And so, and that was that was what was developed by the limits to growth analysis back in 1972-73, which economists, and particularly Nordhaus, one of the recent winners of the so-called Nobel Prize, uh, they've been the major ones undermining it. So now they've done all this highly elaborate, complicated but not sophisticated modeling technology they call dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. And as we are approaching. So obvious climate change saw but this that only Donald Trump is incapable of realizing it's happening. Um, as we're approaching that, they're trying to apply this technology, which is based on the idea of a system that always returns to equilibrium and can only be disturbed by shocks. They have no way, they have absolutely no intellectual capability, so long as they use those models, 
of, of understanding how to deal with climate change. It's not just Donald Trump, by the way. There's a few in the uh, Liberal Party in Australia. So Craig Kelly, who's one of their backbenchers, uh, just this oh, week. You can't, can't forget the onion, of course, Tony Abbott. And Tony Abbott, of course. So, yeah, and a big climate change denier. But Craig Kelly this week said the climate is always dangerous. Uh, we didn't make it dangerous. And it's fossil fuels. They're going to protect us from that climate. So uh, what we should do is obviously build more uh, coal-fired power stations so we can ramp up our uh, our air conditioning so we protect ourselves from climate change. And, uh, I, I, the image that pops in my mind when I hear this sort of stuff, and I know it's it's quite widespread with the climate change deniers who've got massively powerful positions around the world, is that have you ever heard of a place called Teotihuacan? No. Okay, Teotihuacan is a set of, uh, it's a civilization between about 200 BC and about 300 AD. I thought Mexico. you were going to say it was somewhere in outback Queensland, but I wasn't, but <laughs> pretty much the same thing, really. Well, they, 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 rather having the big coconut or the big the big bull, they've got the big uh, pyramid. In fact, the pyramids in Teotihuacan are bigger than Cheops, a quite a remarkable civilization. Uh, it, it had a very strong class structure, and there was literally a very, very strong divide between the... Uh, the rulers and the the, hoi, the, the commoners, and the, the, they would actually a large source of food was cannibalism, uh, capturing local uh, other people from other local regions and bringing them back to be eaten locally. Mm. Um, sacrifices, uh, the usual you know sacrifices, so the sun rises in the morning type stuff. Um, but the civilization collapsed about three hundred. Uh, three hundred AD, and archaeologists recently have discovered that the the chambers in which the rich lived have all got serious markings of charcoal, implying that they were burnt to death. In other words, the populace was led to a situation where the, where the ecosystem of the Teotihuacan civilization broke down, and that tends to be a fairly common pattern in South America. It seems to relate to soil, soil ex- exhaustion and effects of that nature. Uh, exhausting the fertility of the soil, growing, growing too much corn and so on, and then bang, the agriculture collapses. And then everybody realises that these guys have been making the sunrise every morning, uh, have led them into this into this uh, uh, dilemma, and they got they got wiped out by the by the commoners. Burned to the stake. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm expecting, you know, the, the, we, we are heading towards Jango. a similar situation on the global scale. Uh, this, uh, this is the Steve Keen, uh, back to his Marxist ways, uh, come the revolution, brothers and sisters. Come the revolution, we'll all be dead. That's the trouble. Okay? <laughs> once, With this revolution, absolutely. Once who led us into this, into this trap we're currently in, and the central banks are contributing to it. Um, the, mm. the one central bank that's better than that is actually the Bank of England, again, uh, because they've hired some physicists and might actually understand some physical processes in the way that economists are simply incapable of doing. But this guy from the ECB, oh, my God. So so what can central banks do? So, um, I mean, could they, for example, when they, you know, when they're buying, when they've got quantitative easing and they're, they're buying up bonds, uh, should they buy bonds in green initiatives, for example? That's, rather- that's exactly what Positive Money and uh, the Written Economic Foundation were saying they should do, that they're, they're bond buying, bond, when they were buying QE, of course, some people aren't aware of this issue. QE wasn't just buying government bonds off the financial sector, which is what they do in the normal open open market operations they do to try to control the interest rate. Uh, when they did QE, the scale was so great, they had to buy a whole range of other bonds, corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities and so on. And the corporate bonds, uh, they were fairly substantial buyers of bonds being issued, issued by coal and oil companies. 
Now, the mm. point of the New York Economic Foundation and uh, Positive Money and so on is that they could have been buying uh, bonds which were specifically green. In other words, the bonds would finance um, renewable energy projects rather than financing fossil fuels. So they so weren't making the situation price. worse in that case because if they hadn't bought those bonds and there weren't uh, buyers at that price, then the price of those bonds would go down. That would give those uh, fossil fuel companies less money to play with. That's right. They would have paid higher interest rates effectively for their money and they would have had less, less yeah. to use. And you could have, if you had companies putting out bonds which were green bonds, uh, the, the, for example, if you actually came up with a, with a, a workable technology uh, for, a, you know, say, solar power or some description or wave power or something of that nature, the hardest thing you have is getting finance for it. Now, if you uh, go to a bank, forget it. You won't get any funding. Uh, if you go to an equity market, you might not get any funding either. The central bank has got an unlimited capacity to create that money. Right. So we're getting to a, t- a tricky area here, though. And this is a point that Dirk, Dirk Schoenmarker, who was another speaker at that, uh, that conference that we were talking about of central banks and, uh, you know, how they how they save the planet. Because um, it raises the question, doesn't it? If if banks make that decision, like for example, we're going to buy bonds in green initiatives, we're not going to buy them in fossil fuels, then they are making a uh, a policy decision on on the climate. And you know, as he puts it, how far can an unelected technocrat central banker go? That's their problem because they set it up to be unelected technocrats. So there's the whole idea of the separation of powers between central banks and the governments was done in the 1980s and the belief that the central banks were not affected by politics, you get better decisions about interest rates. Now, one of the reasons that politicians were quite happy to make central banks independent is they didn't want to be holding the interest rate hot potato anymore because mm. at that stage we were putting up interest rates to fight inflation. And, of course, any politician doing that knew it was an electoral suicide. So it was very easy to say, let's hand it over to the experts. There's only one problem. They aren't experts. They are experts on a model of the economy, which is fundamentally false. And um, but what it's now meant, of course, they are in this situation where since they're not elected, since there's no political um, um, control over them, uh, then, yes, they do have to make a political decision. Right. But this is point, but so, so, point. so should they stay independent in that case? Because if they're making a because if they're making policy decisions through the investment decisions they make, that could be at odds with the with with the government of the time. So is, is this another this, argument this, that we should just forget about independence of central banks and roll them back into the government and, and make it a cohesive policy? Well, this, this is, this is the, uh, one of the issues I want to discuss at some point in one of our podcasts. Has democracy failed us? Mm. And I believe it has uh, because what we have is, I mean, anything, any system that puts a moron like Donald Trump's in charge of the world's largest economy, I think is proof that the system doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and, and what we have here is- So you're saying it's a bad thing then? We, should keep, we shouldn't roll back in central banks because Donald Trump might be in charge of it. <laughs> That's one of the dangers. I, I think the whole system of politics has failed us here. Mm. In other words, we, 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 what we needed to have is people who can understand these issues being in charge of them, and neither the politicians nor the economists understands the issues of either the economy or the ecology. Well, let's be, a, let's, okay, towards- so let's be a bit more positive about the future. Let's assume that this is just a bad period in history we're going through right now, and, and Donald Trump will be replaced by, I don't know, an, an engineer who becomes president who can suddenly put uh, mm. the world to rights. Should he have the instruments of the central bank 
at his fingertips? Should it all be rolled into one? Because at the moment, you know, all the government can do is tax people to change behaviour. Uh, you know, so, uh, for example, a, a, a carbon tax, um, you know, uh, uh, or closing down power stations. Of course, you know, we're not doing it, either of those things, really. You know, we've got a we're, we're taxing soft drinks to stop obesity uh, mm. rather than uh, educating people, perhaps, that uh, we should eat fewer cows because they are big producers of methane. It's what we're doing right now is all pretty piecemeal stuff. And if if they've only got part of the picture because the central bank is doing the other part, shouldn't they all be one? Assuming we have a sensible person in charge. Well, I think it's, we have a sensible system in charge. We need, and we haven't got that. I'd, I'd like to have. We really need a, a genuine panel of experts mm. uh, to handle the type of issues that are coming up because we have experts talking to fools. Uh, in the case of politic, politics. And in the case of central banks, we have people experts on a model, which itself is foolish. Well, isn't that to- the idea of the House of Lords, that we, you know, these are supposed experts in their field? Yeah, they're not the lords, of course, but they're, they're experts in, in, in past dispossession of the peasantry. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, certainly getting something which is, which is to which you're nominated, uh, you know, basically you, you have to be coerced into it on the basis of your expertise. That's, that's really what we need. We, we and we're getting rather rather a long, long way from the particular topic there. But let's go back to your point about central banks and independence and the fact that it means they can't make a political decision. They have to make. This is not a political decision. This is a technical one. This is about what makes the planet survivable. And it is past the point of, of, of any pretense that we can avoid a, a climate catastrophe. It's going to happen. Well, which gets back to my point. If their modelling was more long-term, wouldn't they see the impact? If, if rather no, than... The, 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 the model isn't long-term, and this is the trouble. Their long-term model, A, has a world in which energy plays no role in production, so they can't even see the interface that exists between the ecology and the economy. B, their long-run long point is some point off in the far distant future where we have an equilibrium balance between the capital labour ratio, which is the production side of the economy, and the rate of change of consumption, which is the consumption side. That's the long-run equilibrium, far from the distant future. And uh, it's but something it, which... But in that yeah. model, if you input, well, okay, here's the rising temperature, and this isn't up and down, this is a trend, so let's take that trend on board, uh, and this is the population, this is the population decline based on that rising uh, 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 rising now temperature. You, now you're talking system dynamics, and their models are not system dynamics models they're equilibrium models right the only thing they can do is shock them they only say there's going to be exogenous shock to demand or to technology that's all they can do and they presume it returns to equilibrium again now the problem is as i said the climate change is not an exogenous shock it's an endogenous process we're causing it right uh, but i mean it's, it's clear to anybody isn't it apart from donald trump obviously and that guy who was talking at the ecb it's clear to anybody that that that, that, that the equilibrium doesn't exist when we're looking at climate change yeah, that's it is, it is clear, but unfortunately, economists have blinded that by the yes, assumption the system is always in or tending towards equilibrium. Mm. They're the last people who are going to be able to make sensible decisions on this front. But if, we actually right, so, so if they change their model, if they if they if they said, well, okay, because you could sort of overlay the two on top of each other, couldn't you? You could say, well, okay, in the short term, uh, for example, the money markets sort of find a find a short term uh, equilibrium. You know, there's uh, the, there's there's elements of it that we know are zero sum games like for example uh, exchange rate uh, fluctuations so they can model all of that and the role of a, a particular growth short-term growth in an in economy they can model all of that so long as underneath it all they've got this long-term uh, systematic change that is influencing that that short if they want to call it equilibrium their short-term quest for equilibrium knowing the equilibrium, equilibrium will shift each year uh, because of climate change 
that's feasible. And so you could tack it on in that fashion. But unfortunately, they, they even think about the economy, ecology in an equilibrium sense. And I've mm, had this pointed out to me recently. I've got to go back and check it. But the Nordhaus apparently argued that the equilibrium level of increase in the optimal, optimal change in temperature. So trading off uh, increased production for increased environmental disruption, the optimal change in temperature to balance those two forces in a nice little what's called Lagrangian, uh, it was three and a half degrees. Now, three and a half degrees, <clears throat> you, you, you and I wouldn't exist anymore. This species, no. Our species can't handle, the, 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 the species in which we depend its existence can't handle. So what does that, that, how did they arrive at that figure? Let's, let's have to talk about that. I've got to pull apart Nordhaus's model uh, at some point, but he's, his model literally came out with an equilibrium trade-off between the, between the, the, the costs of, of, of mitigation and the uh, level of growth of the economy of about a three-and-a-half degree increase in temperature. Right, so his inputs uh, need seriously looking at, don't they? Look, and it's and so another problem we've got is that uh, central banks and governments, of course, look after, only look after their own country, and this is a global issue. So, uh, you know, so the Western world doesn't care too much about drought in the developing world. The only concern they might have is their own food security if they feel like uh, they're not going to be able to import enough. But obviously climate is a global issue, and the most powerful man in the world, as we've already declared, is an idiot who believes that it's a conspiracy theory by the by the Chinese. We're not going to tackle this unless um, we don't take that insular uh, single country focus. But the world yeah. seems to be heading in that direction right now. But that's the, that's unfortunate. I mean, that's one where I can't blame economics for being the problem. It's just the fact you know we're geographically dispersed across the planet, and we're always going to have localized political systems. So that's uh, that's inevitable. And of course, climate change is the classic externality as there's economy. By the way, Bob Ayers, my good friend and colleague, who. Uh, one of the co-authors is the person who turned the term, developed the term externalities. Um, so the idea that yes, yes, you you can dump your pollution out of China, for example, and it falls on Hong Kong or Malaysia. Uh, it's Hong Kong or Malaysia's problem, not yours. That so they're being polluted. Um, so yes, you, it's 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 very hard to avoid that problem. But um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting to the stage where I think the only potential solution we have is going to be massive attempts to manipulate the amount of solar radiation falling on the planet. Um, and that actually, and this has been discussed in some of the, um, some of the ecological circles right now, uh, that can be done by a single country. And what we're li- quite likely to see at some point is that, um, is that it'll become extremely obvious we're destroying our ecosystem very, very rapidly. To give one of the points I know from a colleague of mine, a researcher in soil technology, at the current rate of depletion, we've got 30 years of topsoil. Now, when topsoil goes, uh, the exogenous shock that involves is suddenly you're trying to grow your, your food on, on granite rather than growing it in soil. Um, so, of course, of course, the trend won't be that. That's, that's a, a model which is a, a global model, as if you could globally disperse all the topsoil everywhere. It certainly won't happen at that, that, that level. But that's the size, that's the scale of damage we're doing, even without thinking about climate change, the scale of damage we're doing to our capability to produce goods and services for our own consumption on the planet and for the planet to renew itself as well. So it'll bite us in a very, very big way. And when it does, it's quite possible that one country could say, we've got to cut back the amount of sunshine falling on the planet and we've got to do it now. And we're going to seed the planet, the atmosphere with uh, sulfur dioxide or other particles to reduce the amount of, of uh, solar radiation falling here and reduce the temperature change. You always throw in a whole different angle on these, uh, <laughs> on these discussions, <laughs> Steve Keen. I do 
didn't know we were going to go there. I tell you one thing that I do think is crazy, and this is an example of how just nuts it's all become. Cryptocurrencies. So in China, there's a town in China that used to be a mining town. It's now still a mining town, but it's mining for cryptocurrencies. Basically, they've got uh, server farms using 40 megawatts of electricity per hour, subsidized by the local government, uh, fueled by coal-fired power plants, heaps of coal used to create and maintain money. That's how twisted the world has become. Yeah, I know. And of course, it's not even money. <laughs> no, speculative. it's specu- speculative. For speculative. Yeah, for speculative purposes only. Exactly. So that's how that's how wrong the system is. So yeah. can, so can say is the hope that the central bank could be part of the, the part well, yes, of the fix? What, what central banks what central banks can do and what they're going to be required to do, whether they bloody well want to do it or not, um, is, is when it becomes obvious we've got to massively finance a, a huge shift in our energy production away from fossils towards renewables um and also we've got to I mean, there's a whole lot of other stuff that's got to come as well but in that situation they could buy buy green bonds off companies that come up with the ideas that are going to that, that look like they're going to work and that's what i was talking about earlier that uh, when you come up with a new technology and i'm speaking of somebody who does come up with new technologies uh the hardest thing to do initially is to get finance for it now you can't you you, you can't get equity backing it's very very complicated to get equity backing. You certainly won't get a bank loan, but if the central banks, with mm. their capacity to create a limit, limitless amount of money, could simply say, we are only only now buying bonds from companies producing useful technologies in the en- energy uh, renewable energy field, uh, and the and the sol- and the climate mitigation field as well, um, we're going to get a panel of experts to review these to make sure these things actually have some potential to work, but we're going to gamble as well. We don't mind making losses because the other loss we face is the loss of life on the planet. And when we're going to buy those bonds, then you could get the finance for that very, very rapidly. So that then doesn't become a political decision, does it? If central banks were to change their models so that they allowed for the fact that there is systematic change, which they obviously acknowledge because they're holding this conference, so they know something's going on, so they must recognise the systematic change. That means they've got to put that in their model somehow in now some I just, form. I just thought of the theme song for this particular podcast, mate. Something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? And this <laughs> is why he studied economics and not singing. Thank you very uh, much. <laughs> uh, but, but, if, uh, but if they recognise that there's a change going on and they put it into their models somehow... They can't, they've got to throw their models away. This right. is the thing. And that's why okay. we came back with that exogenous shock nonsense. Yeah. The only way you can model this is with the, the system dynamics model where there's feedbacks between one system and another in, non, in a non-equilibrium sense which is what the limits to growth was built upon, which is what my Minsky software is based on doing. Uh, they've got to learn system dynamics. They've got to learn it bloody fast, and they should throw those stupid models out. And, and, and unfortunately, the university system is producing these inputs to central banks, uh, and, and that's the way they think. And they are the last people on the planet who are going to understand Right. So here we are in a few years' time, because this is what I'm trying to do is say that there's perhaps po- politics isn't in this. So uh, maybe this is a big ask, but in a few years' time, when central banks have thrown those models away and they're all using Minsky, um, and uh, that is you know what's what's driving their decision making, uh, and they're looking at the the long term Im- impact of climate change. It's not a political decision then to say when we issue bonds, we should be issuing it to green companies because they are forestalling this uh, inevitable climate change. Yeah, well, this again, if you look at the limits to growth itself, as if it were the model they adopted, which is what the people who wrote the limits to growth thought would happen back in 1972, 73, when they wrote the model. It's That's uh, from personal conversation with um, uh, Randers, who was one of the three authors. Uh, 
if they'd had those models, then they would have seen this is the trend we're going towards and therefore the only thing we can do is promote industry which reduces our consumption of, of fossil fuels and therefore we'll only fund bonds uh, issued by companies that are, that are doing that sort of work and we'll be leaning it about what happens in terms of uh, corporate failure as well when it's inevitably going to occur. They could have done it and they can do it in the future as well and they're going to bloody well have to do whether they can understand why or not. Right. Okay. Good point to leave it on. We just need worldwide acceptance that this is an issue. And, uh, you know, that means losing a few quite powerful people on the planet. But hopefully they are just a a short, brief interlude in history and common sense will prevail. Let's hope so. Good talk, Steve. Okay. And look, next time, uh, another suggestion from one of our listeners, uh, Peter Verhoeven, has suggested that we look at the steady state economics, the post-growth economy. How do we survive when GDP growth is set to zero? Uh, We'll look at that and what it all means next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.